This is Animals Voice Podcast, presented by the Ontario SPCA with close to 50 communities working together for animal welfare. We've got another great show for you on the way, so put your paws up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody and welcome to Animals Voice Podcast. I'm your host Callie Milliman and we've got a really good one for you today. We're talking about something that's sort of been making some headlines and we're going to be chatting about the recent cases of H3N2 canine influenza. Uh, we, we know that there's been a couple of cases in the Essex County area. So uh, we're going to get chatting about that. Lots of good information coming this way. But just so you know, later we're going to be talking to Dave Wilson. He is our Director of Shelter Health and Wellness at the Ontario SPCA. And he's going to be touching a little bit on how infections like these are are controlled in a shelter environment. But up first, very excited to introduce Dr. Scott Weiss. Hello, Scott. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. He is the pathobiology professor in the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College. And, you know, what we know, Dr. Scott, is that you're an expert in veterinary infection control and zoonotic pathogens. You've got lots of, I'm sure, tons of information to share with us. We also know that you assist in the investigation and response to the H3N2 canine influenza that was recently identified. Yeah, I get called in when we see kind of various weird infectious diseases in various types of animals. All right, so you're the guy we want to be chatting with today, that's for sure. And you're also a part of the team. Once you're sort of called in for these infection control uh, situations that happen across the province, you know, we want to know, can you kind of walk us through the situation in particular with this H3N2 canine influenza? You know, what are some of the steps that are initially taken to control the spread of something like this? Well, it's maybe a bit of an unusual situation since there are a lot of different groups that are involved, but not necessarily anyone with a, a clear mandate to take over. So it's something that, you know, initially is recognized by an owner with a sick animal taken into their primary care veterinarian. And in this case, we had an astute veterinarian who made some good recommendations for infection control, but also got some testing done. And that goes off to diagnostic lab. And when the results come back in Ontario now, uh, canine flu is a reportable disease, which means the government gets notified, plus the veterinarian asks for help at the same time. So at, at that point, we've got a couple different provincial ministries, the ag ministry and the health ministry involved, plus me there to help kind of at the ground level figure out what's going on to try to contain things and explain what's happening. So that's interesting. It, it, it makes me sort of wonder, you know, when someone brings their pet in to a veterinarian and, and the veterinarian has sort of identified that this is the case, how long does it take before it gets to you guys in your area to start acting on it? Well, it really depends on who calls us. It's something that we may never find out about or we may find out very quickly. It's, it's a matter of, you know, the owner or the veterinarian usually identifying something different. And it may be something they see different in the animal. It may be based on the test result. In this situation, we got notified very quickly after they got the positive canine flu test result. Right. So what, are, what do you think pet owners need to know about this H3N2 canine influenza? Well, a lot of it is, you know, general awareness, but stay calm. Influenza is influenza. We're worried about it. We have a population of dogs in Ontario that have you know, never seen this virus before and very few are vaccinated. So we've got the potential for a lot of dogs to become infected, but we also hope that we can keep it contained. So I think being aware that it's out there and using a lot of common sense. Some of the things we do to, to reduce the risk of a dog getting flu are the same thing we'd recommend for a lot of other diseases, like a lot of other respiratory diseases. You know, it's common sense things like if your dog is sick, keep it at home. If you're out with your dog and you see a dog that's coughing or looks sick, stay away from it. 
if you happen to be out yourself and you have contact with a dog that looks sick, well, wash your hands before you touch your dog. These are things that are good for flu, but they're also good for a whole range of problems. Absolutely. So, you know, you touched on it a little bit there, and I'm curious as a pet owner, what are some of the symptoms that I might notice should my dog contract this infection? Well, one of the things with flu, and I guess maybe it's good and bad combined, is it doesn't look a lot different than other things that we see from respiratory disease. There are a range of bacteria and viruses that can cause infectious respiratory tract disease in dogs. And flu is really not any different. Some cases can be more severe, but in general, your average dog with influenza it's kind of just like you with influenza. They feel pretty crappy. They get a fever. They get a cough. They get, you know, muscle pain. And they feel run down for a little while, but they typically get over it themselves. So there's not something where you're going to look at your dog and say, yeah, that dog has flu. Or you're going to see it as a veterinarian dog that comes in and say, that one's got flu versus it's got another respiratory right. virus. That means we have to do testing to figure out if it's the problem. Okay, yes. Okay, absolutely. And so, you know, I know a lot of people talk a lot about animals who are coming from other countries or, you know, traveling. Are there processes that are currently in place to screen imported dogs for viruses like this one? No, there's not really any mechanism to control that. Importation restrictions are are focused on rabies. So animals can come in with various types of diseases, uh, with various health and vaccination backgrounds. And one of the problems we have with flu on top of that is there's a window about a day or so before a dog gets sick that there can be shedding a lot of the flu virus. So you can have any dog you can look at it can look perfectly healthy, but maybe it's just in that incubation period where it's going to get sick tomorrow, but it's pumping out a lot of virus today. So you touched on this a little bit, and you sort of mentioned how people can kind of prepare for this and prevent their dog from contracting it. You know, you mentioned if you're around dogs who maybe seem like they're unwell, make sure you wash your hands before interacting with your own pets at home. But should we be changing some of our everyday sort of routine things we do with our dog? Like if I take my dog to the dog park, should I now be maybe not doing that and just doing my own backyard? Or, you know, what are some some things that we should be doing to prevent this? Well, I don't think we should be changing some of the routine things we do, but we should maybe think about how we do them. Like I said, if you're going to the dog park again, is your dog healthy? That's good. Take it there. If it's sick, keep it at home. If you're at the dog park, just keep your eye out. If you see some dogs that look sick, um, stay away from them or leave the park. We're never going to eliminate the risk of encountering an infectious disease, but some basic things like that we can reduce. So we don't want to become hermits because we're worried about flu. And flu is just one of the things that we worry about. There are a lot of infectious diseases that are out there, and those common sense things will help reduce that. There are some situations we're going to be a little bit more worried. So if your dog is, you know, old, very young, has some underlying diseases like heart disease or respiratory tract disease, then we're going to be more wary of flu and other respiratory diseases that could be more severe in that individual. And that's when we think more about being a little more restrictive, being particularly careful with who they get exposed to, and also thinking about vaccination. Uh, yes, of course. So that's a big one. And of course, your team would be all over recommending that their, their pets get their vaccines just like we do here. Well, at this point, we're just waiting and seeing to some degree, right? You, you don't want to say that every dog in Canada needs a flu vaccine because we've only got this one little instance here. On the flip side of that is, you know, flu is endemic in some parts of the U.S. and we can see it in dogs brought in from Asia, so you never really know what you're going to encounter. For me, I think it's something people need to think about. What's the risk of their dog encountering flu? If your dog lives at home, goes in the backyard, doesn't see many other dogs, and you're not in an area where we know there's flu activity, the risk is really low. If your dog has contact with rescues that are being imported, if your dog's traveling to the U.S., you know, if you go on vacation 
or if he's having contact with people with dogs that go to the U.S. So you have family members that go down to Florida and they come back with their dog. Those are groups can be a higher risk of getting exposed. Mm-hmm. And then also with the sick dog. So if you've got a dog that has chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease, or is one of the you know, brachycephalic breeds, the smushy face breeds, like bulldogs that have a harder time when they get a respiratory tract disease, that's kind of the next group for me that I think about vaccinating because they're more likely going to have complications from an infection. So people that are in areas where we know flu is active, vaccination is a good idea. Outside of that, it's starting to think, okay, what's the risk of exposure and what's the risk of bad things happening if they get sick? Okay, those are really great points. So you're a part of this fantastic team. So I'm curious to know how your team is going to continue to monitor the virus and ensure it doesn't spread further in Ontario now that we've identified these cases. Well, a lot of it's just seeing what's happening, right? So we're following the initial dogs. We're trying to find out when they stop shedding the virus, see if that's contained. But a lot of it is seeing what else is coming up. So it's having kind of our ear to the ground for sick dogs and obviously intervening if any other positives come up and try to see what's going on. So we're trying to to sort out, you know, is there much flu activity? Is there any other flu activity going on? And if there is, then we'll want to respond similarly and try to contain it. We'd like to avoid a situation like they have in a lot of places in the U.S. where it's spreading widely. Um, Whether that's possible or not, you know, we're a big open continent, so things can move back and forth. But the longer we can keep it away and the more we can keep it contained, the better for us. Absolutely. So, Scott, how can the public find more information if they're interested in knowing more about this? Well, there are a few good sources of information. We have a website, wormsandgermsblog.com, where we have information on flu, uh, various types of things. Uh, In the U.S., the the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, has good information on canine flu. There are some good resources out there that kind of outline the story, but help keep it into context. People sometimes, you know, panic when they hear influenza. So it's something we're definitely concerned about. We want to make sure people are aware but not freaking out. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Weiss, for joining us and providing us with lots of fantastic information and even a couple of resources that we can check out should we be looking for more information and maybe demystifying this a bit for us. Thank you. All right, everybody, we are going to head into a quick commercial break. Of course, when we come back, we are going to be chatting with Dave Wilson. Once again, he is the director of Shelter Health and Wellness at the Ontario SPCA. And we'll be back with him right after this very short break. Will you be a cupcake champion for animals? Now in its sixth year, the National Cupcake Day campaign runs throughout January and February, culminating on Monday, February 26th, the sweetest day of the year. Across Canada, we're asking people like you to bake cupcakes for National Cupcake Day. Bake, decorate, eat, and share delicious cupcakes to raise money for animals in need. Visit nationalcupcakeday.ca to host a cupcake day party on a day that's convenient for you. Get involved and bake a difference. Welcome back, everyone, to Animals Voice Podcast. Before the break, we were talking to Dr. Scott Weiss, and we were really getting in on some information about this canine influenza. And now we are joined by Dave Wilson. He is the Director of Shelter Health and Wellness here at the Ontario SPCA. Hi, Dave. Hey, Kelly. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. Yeah, new host. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. You know what? It's going to be uh, great to kind of get things from your perspective because it's slightly different. You know, we sort of got the idea about folks who have their 
dogs at home, you know, kind of how they're going to be reacting to this news about these cases of the canine influenza and maybe what actions they can take. But it's slightly different in a shelter environment. The Ontario SPCA participates um, at different times in international transfers. And I'm curious to know what procedures we have to ensure the safety of those animals and the ones that are already in our care. It's a great point. It really is. And I think the the big thing with this is because the the dogs came from an international source, um, I think folks are are really kind of focusing in on that. And the big thing is with with us, with our protocols and our policies that we have in place for bringing in new animals, for monitoring them while they're in our care, that's all based on uh, the Canadian standards um, uh, that were developed actually initially in the States, uh, the standards of care for um, shelters. Um, And then the Canadian standards came out as a result of that. So Our protocols and our policies come from those Canadian standards. They come from our contacts with uh, the main shelter medicine centers in the U.S., UC Davis, Florida, Cornell, uh, and Wisconsin. All of our stuff is developed in consultation with uh, the experts in conjunction with policies that are best practices that already exist. So the thing with our, our protocol for intaking new animals or arrival of new animals, it really doesn't matter if the animal is coming from Uh, you know, somewhere else in Ontario, another province, another country, uh, another hemisphere. It's all the same policies and processes that are put in place to maximize the safety, given the fact that veterinary medicine is a science, but it's also still an art, just like human medicine is. There's nothing that's 100%, but we try to get as close as possible to it. Okay, so that's really interesting. That sort of gives us the the starting jump off point to talk about the fact that it doesn't matter where the animal comes from, there is a certain process when the animal comes into our care. And obviously, as you mentioned, they're monitored while they're in our care. So let's talk about how we do that, how a little bit more detail about the intake process and a little bit about how they're monitored to ensure that they're at some point in a condition to move up to the adoption floor to find their new home. Sure. I mean, our intake process starts with our our intake exam. And most of the time that's done by lay staff because it's meant to be uh, a preliminary checklist to determine the overall basic health of the animal. Now, it can also in some of our centers be performed by RVTs, by registered veterinary technicians. Uh, So we get an extra level of care in those particular centers. But the, the exams themselves are designed so that it's a very effective way of the staff capturing critical information and it includes some things like like heart rate, respiratory rate, the body condition score of the animal, the temperature of the animal, all of those things that we've given then the staff the parameters to say, if it's falling within this range, you're okay to continue moving forward. If it isn't, then that's where you stop. And usually that's where we first get contact from one of the animal centers where they'll say, look, this, this variation has shown up or this uh, little red flag has popped up. We're not sure how to move forward with it. And that's when we really start to depend on our our veterinary partners, our community veterinary hospitals uh, in the towns towns and cities where our animal centers are located. That's when our animal centers will then contact them directly and establish that direct veterinary consultation and direct veterinary oversight because then you you have a veterinarian who has their eyes on that animal and can manage that particular case directly. And we can still keep some overview of it, but, but we're at a distance because 
we're not in all of our centers all the time. So the, the NTA exam does that. The daily monitoring uh, processes do that as well. And, and again, we try to make it as functional as possible. So it's a, a checklist that the staff go through every day for every animal. There's a, a medical component they look at. There's a behavioral component they look at. Because sometimes some of the earliest signs of illness in an animal is a behavior change, not necessarily a medical change. So they'll go through that checklist. And again, it's, it's a great way to maintain continuity because we have different staff coming in to care for the animals on different days. And just because one person sees, let's say, a cat or a dog that isn't eating very well today, they need to know that that's only today. And this isn't now day three of that cat not eating because that now creates a really you know emergent situation where that cat needs to go off to see one of their veterinary community partners. Those are really great points. And I I have to say from having experience working with adoptions and being able to assist in having animals go to their new homes, oftentimes adopters come in and want background information on the animal. And, and, you know, at getting to reference some of those checklists and look back at their journey and their time uh, with us through their care helps to inform us and give information that we're able to provide the adopter about the animal and helps us make a better match. So that's uh, it it works. uh, It works obviously for their health and, and their care while they're with us, but can also help to find them find them a great home. Yeah, and that, that documentation, I mean, not only does it help the adopter, but then there is copies that are provided for the adopter to provide to their veterinarian when they choose their veterinarian. So their veterinarian isn't starting from, from scratch, basically starting, you know, going, well, I, I've never seen this cat before. That's true. They haven't physically seen that cat before, but now they've got a whole history they can follow on when the vaccines were yeah. given and yes. what deworming, what products have been used on what dates. And yeah, no, it's yeah. great. So talking about that process, do we think that any of the process will change in light of the recent canine influenza? I don't think so. Not for now. I think, uh, I think the big thing that we do is observation. And, and that's when the animals come in. Initially, you know, when they, when they walk in the door, they don't actually walk in the door and go get set up in their, in their room or in their little house where they're going to live. They walk in the door and they immediately go to intake. And that's where that examination. So if there is a red flag, then the staff can react. And if that reaction means we're going to redirect that animal straight to a veterinarian today, um, we can do that. We have those relationships with our great veterinary partners in our communities. If the animal is stable and is showing no abnormal signs, then then we start to create that history. That's the nice thing with that intake exam. We now have a baseline on a bunch of different values for that animal. Uh, everything from how they're breathing to if there's a heart murmur to how their pulse is, all those things really help us start to establish. Because for a lot of times, these animals could be strays. We know nothing about them. They know nothing about us and we need to start finding some sort of common ground to build our our foundation of care for them and then we can move forward with that. The big thing with our protocols, they're really designed to to have that intensive period of observation when the animal first arrives. And this is where when I said it comes down to kind of an art and a science, that comes into play. Because there's no way that you can hold an animal in a quarantine state or in an observation state Mm -hmm. to cover every single disease on the planet. Some of them, you know, they may only have an incubation period of 7 to 10 days. But some of them can have incubation periods of months. And I mean... That's not fair to the animal. Then we start to see behavioral complications. It's unfair to hold the animal in a shelter situation when our primary goal is move the animal through the system, get them rehomed into their forever home where our pet animals are designed to be is with their family partners in their forever homes. So the protocols really stress observation as a major component, but also mentioning to the staff that, you know, all those protocols have been established 
following best practices, but we also need to know, and that's where we stay in close contact with them, that if a variation shows up or something, quite honestly, something odd happens, that's where they reach out to us. They establish immediate contact with one of our, our department team, and we went then perhaps have to do something a little bit different with that individual animal, but the protocols that uh, really are designed to care for a population of animals moving through our care, our system, uh, stay in place. The, the interesting thing is that canine influenza has gotten a lot of media attention, and that's good because it's raising awareness to the public, and that's great, but there's other diseases, I think, that are, that are the sort of things that our protocols and our observations are designed to be um, more significant. And, and one example would be rabies. Uh, not only because rabies affects all of our pets, all of our warm-blooded animals, but it also affects humans as well. And, you know, thankfully not in Canada, but in other areas of the world, rabies in humans is still unfortunately relatively common. And it's, it's a tragic, tragic disease for an animal to have to go through or for a human to have to go through. So that's why the canine influenza has been good in that it's raised the awareness of the public about new and emergent diseases in this particular geographical area. But from a scientific significance for us, for shelter care, for, for shelter medicine and shelter health and wellness, it's one example of the sort of things that our protocols are really in place and designed to help us stay in a great observation state um, and help the staff also give them the tools to know what to look for when and when it's appropriate to, to reach out for us. And that's, that's mainly what our function is, is to be available for them. You know, that's awesome. It, this has really given people, I think, a little bit of a behind the scenes look through our conversation about what the animals go through when they come into our care and sort of moving right through. And it definitely, I think, uh, gives a bit of confidence in, in, you know, the care that we provide to the animals and to the adopters who may come in and be interested in the animals and what they've been provided up to the point of getting to meet their forever pet, essentially. So uh, thank you so much for sharing all this information. Uh, it's been it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody. Uh, today we had a really great chat all about canine influenza. And of course, if you want more information about any topics that we discuss, check out our blog, ospcablog.ca. Of course, we want you to share and subscribe. And we want you to check us out on iTunes as well. So don't forget, tune in next time for more great conversation. This has been Animals Voice Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Animals Voice Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at our website, ontariospca.ca. Animals Voice Podcast is a production of the Ontario SPCA. The Society would like to thank all of our supporters. Together, we are the Animals Voice.